It could have been about a couple of minutes before 8 o'clock. I didn't even sound color, so I'm, I'm really not sure. And then Captain Binion came up, and this was about a little after, just a couple of minutes after 8 o'clock. And he come up there, and he looked, he says, my God, we're at war. And then the next thing I remember, there was a tremendous explosion on the Tennessee uh, near number two gun turret. And there was shrapnel all over the place. And then I looked around, and Captain Banyan was laying on the deck. He had most of his, uh, he was almost tore in half. And we made him as comfortable as we could. And this was just a little bit about eight or nine minutes after eight o'clock, and we stood up, and all of a sudden I saw the Arizona explode. And I tell you, I never was so scared in my whole life. Tuesday, December 7th, will mark the 80th anniversary of the event that sparked the United States' entry into World War II, the bombing of Pearl Harbor. I'm Zach, and I'm joined by my colleagues Craig and Pam. In this episode, we will explore this historical event, President Franklin Roosevelt's address to Congress, and oral history from eyewitnesses using clips from C-SPAN's digital video library and archive, and on C-SPAN Classroom's website. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Before we look at the events that unfolded that day, I think we need to provide some context and look at what was going on in Japan at that time amidst the greater global conflicts. Let's listen to the author of Japan 1941, Eri Hoda, as she talks about her findings through her research. Let's remember that Japan was already at war in 1941. Japan had been engaged in this uh, war of conquest that started out of real exit plan already in 1937. Mid-1937, Japan starts fighting China, trying to conquer it. And they conquer cities, but they don't quite get the whole huge country under control. And they kept saying that they are winning and leaping from victory to victory, which was really true, but they were not winning the war. Um, So people were starting to wonder this war that was supposed to be quickly over in one month. After four years, it hasn't really ended. What's going on? In the clip, we heard from Ms. Hoda about Japan's ongoing war of conquest from 1937 to 1941. These efforts, part of arguably a larger imperialist and expansionist movement on the part of the Japanese, dominated much of Asia at the onset of World War II. Hoda later goes on to speak about the human impact of this geopolitical shift, including rationing among Japanese citizens for the sake of the war efforts. For more detail and some guiding questions about this historical consideration, please check out the Japan in 1941 bell ringer that's listed on our Featured Resources podcast page. But we'd also be remiss if we didn't mention the geopolitical context that America faced at the time. We'll later hear a portion of President Franklin Roosevelt's Day of Infamy speech, in which he discusses how the United States was still engaged in peace talks with the Japanese in the days leading up to the attack on Pearl Harbor. In fact, in 1941, the United States was considered primarily an isolationist state, with Roosevelt signing the Neutrality Act just a few years earlier in 1935. However, Japan's movement to become a world player set the country on a path of alliance with the other growing Axis powers in opposition to U.S. interests. The loose alliance between Japan and the Axis powers, which was illustrated by the latter's lack of concrete knowledge of Japanese plans for the attack on Pearl Harbor, 
put the Japanese directly at odds with the United States over control of the Pacific theater. Yeah, so Pam, I know you're going to talk about some activities looking at the geography and the distances between Japan and Pearl Harbor, as well as some of uh, the key battle locations from the Pacific theater. But when we were discussing the 80th anniversary of Pearl Harbor, I was actually thinking back to my own education and what we learned about uh, the Japanese air raids when I was growing up in rural northern Australia. Australia, as you may know, has always been a close ally with the U.S. and with the close proximity to Indonesia, Papua New Guinea and the remote Pacific Islands where many of the battles took place. The northern parts of Australia served as strategic military bases and outposts for battles in the region. So as a child, I remember learning about a similar raid that took place in Darwin in the north central part of Australia where nine weeks after the attack on Pearl Harbor, a similar raid involving 250-odd Japanese aircraft sunk eight naval ships in the harbor and killed a couple of hundred uh, Australian and American sailors. So that's only about one-tenth of the casualties of Pearl Harbor, but similar attacks continued across the northern parts of the country, including my hometown, uh, which was actually bombed in July of 1942. So in saying this, I don't mean to deviate too far from the topic of Pearl Harbor, uh, but I think that gets to the point that Ms. Hoda was making in the clip about Japan launching and winning many battles around that time, but not necessarily winning the war. So considering your education experience, Craig, I think teachers can use this clip to launch a greater discussion on different topics, such as imperialism, either during that time or throughout history as countries such as England, Spain, France, Germany, and others expanded their territories, or in linking back to what you mentioned, Zach, the idea of isolationism in U.S. history and its impact on the country could be another area for teachers to explore. One resource that comes to mind is a bell ringer that we have on the Stimson Doctrine. And in that video, Yale University law professor Scott Shapiro talked about this doctrine and how it became policy that the U.S. does not recognize conquests, or he even stated treaties that were coerced. He goes on to discuss how the League of Nations was on board with this as well, so classes can discuss how it impacted the world. Professor Shapiro even mentions that is why Russia's invasion of Crimea was not recognized, so it can be used in a variety of ways, even within the current climate. A possible activity I'm thinking about is something I did when I was teaching a unit of study, and there was a tie-in for history and geography, and that would be to create a large classroom map that students could update. It could reflect events that were occurring throughout the world as you move through a unit of study in World War II. Students could note the locations of where Japan had a presence, reflect the geopolitics of the time, and include a key of the valuable resources that were available in different countries. It would be a nice visual representation to complement what students are learning so they could reference it or ask questions and draw conclusions as they develop it. Those are some definitely great classroom uh, potential opportunities and activities for teachers to use, Pam. Um, and now that we've you know, set the stage for the geopolitical context of 1941, it's time to now turn our focus to the attack on Pearl Harbor itself. Um, this next clip is a different type of video that we haven't yet played before on this podcast. It's footage from our American History TV Real America series. That's a real R-E-E-L. This clip features archival footage from a 1941 newsreel report on the December 7, 1941 Japanese attack on the U.S. Navy's Pacific Fleet in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. As they drop their load of death on the naval base, on Wheeler Field, on civilian homes and schools. A hundred Japanese planes and a number of midget submarines took part in the attack. In an hour and five minutes, the battleship Arizona was completely destroyed and four others severely damaged. Three other battleships and three cruisers suffered lesser damage. Nearly 200 planes were destroyed. 
In that Sunday morning inferno, the Pacific fleet appeared to be completely immobilized by the sneak attack. Nearly 3,000 casualties added to the catastrophe. This newsreel provides a powerful visual to what occurred on this day, which offers another dimension for students to absorb the magnitude of this event. The complete clip is about two and a half minutes long and begins by explaining the discussions that were occurring between Japan and the United States prior to the attack. It continues on to reference the destruction and losses the United States military suffered and how they, along with civilians, swung into action that day to prepare for what might happen next. It also mentions the two carriers that were at sea that day and were later used in other battles, including the Coral Sea and Midway. It's just another lens through which students can learn about this historic event. Uh, so something that we strive to do for all of our resources on C-SPAN Classroom is to provide alternative points of view and testimony in the form of oral history. And the idea here is that students can listen to differing perspectives and think critically for themselves about what they agree and disagree with. So this is a clip from the National World War II Museum in New Orleans. I'm going to say from South Carolina, it's actually pronounced Nolens, but <laughs> Thanks, Zach. Yeah. Uh, this clip features a Japanese pilot, Zenji Abe. Uh, he actually participated in the bombing of Pearl Harbor and as a unit commander actually bombed the USS Arizona as it was beginning to sink. So here's this clip. Well, I felt in my bones something major was about to happen. It seemed inevitable. So the move to Pearl Harbor wasn't at all surprising or emotional. There was no, let's give the Yanks a taste of what they've got coming, none of that. Just, well, I guess this is finally starting. The first wave was an hour ahead of us, and the scheduled time for their attack was Sunday at 8 a.m. I figured that the first wave must have already arrived by now, but I still couldn't see Oahu. And then just then, from under the cloud bank, I finally saw something glittering white that I knew had to be the Kaneohe coastline and the airbase at Ford Island. I headed out toward Diamond Head and banked right, descending from an altitude of 3,500 meters. Then, as the unit commander, I gave the order to make the assault. My mission in the second wave was to attack aircraft carriers and suppress the American emergency response and the counterattack. But the carriers I was supposed to bomb weren't there, or at least we didn't know their actual locations. At first I was disappointed because it seemed my targets weren't there at all. The battleships were all lined up in Battleship Alley, the Tennessee, Arizona, West Virginia, Maryland, and all that. I actually wound up attacking the Arizona, but nothing happened as a result of my attack. What I mean by that is that after releasing the ordinance, I realized the Arizona was already a meter below the waterline and sinking. The first wave had successfully hit the battleship, and I realized my bomb was essentially wasted munition. Craig, this is why I love using oral histories in class, because the perspectives of the average person are able to come through. And these perspectives are so much more relatable and emotional than someone who's just summarizing an event years after the fact. For example, in this clip, Mr. Abe describes his motivation in attacking Pearl Harbor. And that it wasn't for vengeance, it wasn't for expansionism, 
It wasn't for religion or even in support of the Axis powers. The reason why he attacked the USS Arizona was, in his words, in service to his country. And quite simply, history is awfully complex. And as students of history, we must all consider the many different perspectives that go into just one story. For students, the process of, quote, collecting memories can be an easy way to not only learn something, but to make someone feel that their story is important. And the National World War II Museum in Nolens includes several great tips for directing your students to gather oral histories on a variety of topics, and we'll go and link that resource on our featured resources page. Uh, From my own childhood, I think back to how powerful it was to hear oral history about the 1942 attack on my hometown in Queensland, Australia. So extremely rural, think expansive sugarcane farms stretching along the coast of the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, In one of the bombings, a farmer's daughter around the age I was when we were learning about this in school was one of the victims of the attack, and she ended up being hit with a shrapnel from uh, one of the bombs while she was sleeping. I also heard first-hand accounts from the area fishermen about undetonated sea mines that were floating up or becoming tangled in fishing equipment as the mines broke free from their moorings on the seafloor. So for context, for fear of uh, Japanese naval attacks, lots of mines have been placed in the shipping channel that runs just off our coastline inside the Outer Great Barrier Reef. And occasionally, uh, to this day, we still hear stories of old mines washing up on the beach after cyclones or heavy storms. So uh, just getting back to things, I know I'm likely preaching to the choir here, but for students to make those types of connections through oral history or to learn about an event and have it shaped in a way that's more understandable or personal to them, that can make the the history all the more memorable. So it can really make students want to learn a little bit more about the topic and that person too. Moving forward to the day after the attack on Pearl Harbor, President Roosevelt addressed a joint session of Congress in his Day of Infamy speech. Let's listen to an excerpt of his remarks in this primary source in which he denounced the attack and asked Congress for a declaration of war on Japan in his address. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate, of the House of Representatives, Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The United States was at peace with that nation and at solicitation of Japan, still in conversation with its government and its emperor, looking toward the maintenance of peace in the Pacific. Indeed, one hour after Japanese air squadrons had commenced bombing in the American island of Oahu, The Japanese ambassador to the United States and his colleague delivered to our Secretary of State a formal reply to a recent American message. And while this reply stated that it seemed useless to continue the existing diplomatic negotiations, it contained no threat or hint of war or of armed attack. It will be recorded 
that the distance of Hawaii from Japan makes it obvious that the attack was deliberately planned many days or even weeks ago. Yes, yeah, so clearly one of the most well-known presidential speeches and one that our team has developed several resources around, including our popular lesson on presidential speeches in the times of crisis. So as a teacher, this is a prime opportunity to have your students analyze the speech for not only what was said, but how he said it. It's a, uh, it's a good lesson for students to hear um, about the drafting of the initial speech so and how it went through the revision process. So most famously, it was changed from the original wording of from a date which will live in world history uh, to a date which will live in infamy. Students can also evaluate the goals of the speech, which were several fold. So not only was this an address to the American people to inform them of what had occurred and to garner their support for entering the war, but it also intended to calm and reassure the country so Roosevelt's delivery had to be confident and deliberate. Immediately following the speech, Congress declared war against Japan, so that would be another opportunity for you as a teacher to explore the role of the separation of powers and uh, checks and balances as well. And Craig, in a latter part of his speech, FDR also uses the following phraseology, uh, and, and I quote here, In addition, American ships have been reported torpedoed on the high seas between San Francisco and Honolulu. Yesterday, the Japanese government also launched an attack against Malaya. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Hong Kong. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Guam. And President FDR goes on and lists several more places that Japanese forces attacked the same day uh, and, and the, the latter uh, few hours after the attack on Pearl Harbor. And I think that this section of the speech lends itself directly to a map exploration activity, much like you had mentioned earlier, Pam, where students could plot the locations of all of the attacks that occurred on December 7th and December 8th, 1941. This section can also illustrate for students the critical role that word choice, such as repetition or alliteration, plays in accomplishing the intent of a speech. And in another C-SPAN clip that I recently watched while developing a lesson about the eras of presidential speeches from George Washington to present day, I also found it interesting that due to the effects of polio, uh, President FDR had to firmly grasp the podium at all times when he was standing at any sort of speaking engagement, having fallen at, at an earlier speaking engagement. And as a result of him having to hold on to the podium while he's speaking, he wasn't able to gesture with his hands, much like I do all of the time. <laughs> he had to gesture with his head from left to right. So I think that this historical insight, and if you watch the, the actual video of his Day of Infamy speech, you'll notice what he's doing. But I think that this presents a unique opportunity for students to also explore how stature and body language also impact how famous speakers get their points across. I have to agree, Zach, that learning about that fact offered more insight and depth to the speech for me. And in thinking about what you mentioned, Craig, some activities teachers could have their students explore are to have them consider what they would have included in a speech if they were president, or they could review the elements that we've discussed with the speech and analyze other notable ones. So students could research famous speeches and pick one that interests them or one that relates to the topic that is being learned about in class. So, for example, if you're studying about the Civil War time period, maybe President Lincoln's Gettysburg Address would be something for students to consider. Or the Ain't I a Woman speech given by Sojourner Truth. They could also look at Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech or President George Bush's 9-11 Address to the Nation. We have resources for all of those topics on our classroom website. They could discuss the purpose of the speech, 
summarize the key points, consider the audience for which it was intended, explain its impact, and determine if it achieved its goal. If there is video in the speech, students could also discuss how it was delivered through tone and body language to reinforce all the concepts that were explored in this class. Some final thoughts on the day of infamy speech as we start to segue into the legacy and the lessons learned from the attack on Pearl Harbor. But one final possible extension beyond the speech would be to discuss uh, Roosevelt's executive order 9066 and the forced internment of 120,000-odd Japanese Americans beginning in February of 1942 through the end of 1945. So roughly two-thirds of those in the camps were American-born U.S. citizens. So students here could explore the due process clause of the Constitution and really how that order violated the civil liberties and constitutional rights of U.S. citizens. So as we get into the legacy, uh, this next clip features William Spain. He serves as the associate provost of the U.S. Naval War College in Rhode Island. And this was from a culminating segment on a panel discussion uh, discussing the legacy of the attack on Pearl Harbor. But in this clip, he goes on to talk about the great human spirit that it takes in moving past tragedy and the mistakes made by mankind throughout history. We've spent uh, several days looking at uh, one of the great tragedies in human history. But it's not the sole human tragedy. Uh, War and the folly of war have been with mankind throughout recorded history and before that. And uh, the great institution I work at studies that war uh, uh, to see how we can, in fact, prevent such war and statesmanship to keep the peace. Uh, so what, what I think we, while we heard again about a lot of the tragedy part from the institutional piece, I think my colleague here has hit it right. The tenor underneath that uh, pallor that's laid on top of us is the great human spirit that those stories gave. The, the great um, capability of the human race. Uh, the ability to, in fact, uh, respond to tragedies, uh, to respond to the, to the love of each other, uh, to respond in ways that you wouldn't think of, whether you were a Japanese-American interred uh, and, and discriminated against in your own country, as we heard someone on the panel today. So I think what we heard, if we listened carefully, that uh, there's a great joy ahead, and those stories of human spirit are still there to carry that joy. Um, our charge is to continue to study these kinds of things so that we can spend more time talking about the greatness of the human spirit and less time about the folly of mankind trying to resolve things through war. As with any historical event, you know, the, the ongoing legacies are just so complicated and they often mean different things to different people. For this reason, I think it deserves repeating from when I mentioned it just a few minutes ago. Oral histories are very important primary resource tools for use in our classrooms. The attack on Pearl Harbor has had a number of lasting impacts, but William Spain speaks to the humanity of it all. Specifically, how we can listen to stories, like the oral histories we referenced earlier, to listen to them, to learn from them, and to look to them for solutions in the present day and for solutions in the future. I think having students look through different perspectives from that day offers a much more complete picture or understanding of the context, the environment of the event, and and what it ended up leading to. To your point, Zach, I think it also serves as a way to generate connections and extend our own learning, which could be achieved through a culminating activity. So students could choose one of the perspectives they heard in a clip 
and write journal entries detailing what they experienced on that day and how it impacted them. Were they a pilot? Were they on one of the ships? They may want to view it from the lens of a civilian as well. And we do have stories from civilians who are present at Pearl Harbor. And we will drop those on our featured resources website for you to share with your students if you're interested. They could also create a simulated social media post about what they were experienced from a particular perspective or as an extension activity. And something I did while we prepared this episode was to interview family members, friends, or neighbors to get their views about a historical event. That could be anything. Kennedy assassination, 9-11 Watergate, whatever personal story a person can share. I know that my discussions with my own family members and friends, I have learned a lot and gain new perspectives from listening to their personal stories, not only about Pearl Harbor and World War II, but other historical events and the impact that it had on different generations in my family. So I'd like to pose a question to all of you listening. Um, What does history teach us? We have some final thoughts about the legacy of Pearl Harbor from longtime former Hawaiian Senator Daniel Inouye. If December the 7th is going to teach us anything... It should be that we must remain vigilant at all times, not just to avoid war, but vigilant among ourselves so that we would not use this as a justification to set aside our most honored document, the Constitution. I hope it will never happen again. This week's episode explored the bombing of Pearl Harbor through eyewitness testimony, archival newsreel footage, and input from contemporary historians and politicians. In addition to the resources featured in this episode, we encourage you to please check out all of our historical military resources for use in your classroom on our C-SPAN Classroom website. So just as a final reminder, again, you can access all of the programs and teacher resources that we shared today on our podcast page at cspan.org slash classroom. And if you would like to connect with our team, please email us anytime at educate at cspan.org. That's it for this week. Join us next time as we highlight some of our favorite resources from key moments and milestones that occurred in 2021. Until then, thank you again for joining us.